Well, I'm going to remember that technique line. Whenever you want anybody to remember something, just have them stand up. That's going to be good. Yeah, let's all stand for the Bible study this morning. Yeah. Well, uh, we've been looking at wisdom and uh, proverbial wisdom in particular. We complete that this semester. Uh, and proverbial wisdom is that wisdom that applies to about 90 95% of the cases where if you do this, you're likely to see this outcome. And learning that in all of life is important for every one of us. And we looked at various ways in which this applies. It applies to sex. It applies to your work life. It applies to, to uh, your speech, the way you talk. It applies to your friendships. Uh, it applies to your finances, as Chris Kraft showed us. It applies to managing your own internal emotions, as Brent Stenberg showed us. And we concluded last week it applies to handling those women in your life. And we reserve that to the last because that, of course, requires the most wisdom of all. And uh, at the end of it, Bill Weber came up to me and told me something I wish I'd thought of to say, which is absolutely true. And he said, it's never too late. It's never too late. That's said by an old man, Bill Weber. <laughs> and, you know, I wish I had said that because it's so true. I found it that women are amazing creatures. I mean, men, men will decide what they think about people, and that kind of sticks with them for life, you know? It kind of cubby holds. Women, they respond, you know? And if you go home and love them, it's amazing. They can forgive decades of your stupidity <laughs> with about one week of kindness. It's amazing to me how, they, how God gave them the ability to operate like that. And it's it really never too late. I've, I have, I mean, I really can't think of an instance right now. I know there must be one over 30 years of pastoral ministry, but I just can't think of one where the man put himself at the woman's mercy and said, I'm, I'm an idiot, I'm a fool, I'm sorry for all these things I've done, all of which have been articulated in these counseling sessions. I take responsibility for every one of them. Honey, I love you. I want to serve you. I want to be yours. I want to be a faithful and loving husband to you. Will you please uh, stay married to me? I don't find that that fails. <laughs> Just, it's amazing how women will respond to a man who really loves her especially when it's in the covenant of marriage. So don't give up hope. Bill Weber, you're right. Don't give up hope. Continue to respond to those women. Start today. Uh, as we, it's true with everything in wisdom, but especially with that one, we can say that, that normally that is, is the way that it works. Okay, now we're taking this wisdom, and uh, I want us to notice uh, today especially how it all comes to a head, in the head, Jesus Christ. And how the New Testament brings this all together for us. Now, we're going to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to stay in the Old Testament this year. But, you know, you just can't resist it because it leads so clearly to what the New Testament itself teaches about wisdom. And I want us to bring this proverbial wisdom to a head. Uh, in fact, it's all of wisdom as we look at what the New Testament has to say. Now, next semester, we're going back to the Old Testament. And we're going we're gonna to study two great books of wisdom. One written by... Job and one written by Solomon, Ecclesiastes. And uh, we'll start with Job, which Thomas Carlyle calls the greatest book ever written. And certainly it would have to compete as the greatest book ever written. I don't know that it is. I guess I would say the Bible altogether is the greatest book ever written. But Job is one fabulous book. And we'll see that that will uh, inaugurate our study into what we call reflective wisdom, and that's dealing with the difficult cases. Why is it bad things happen to good people? Why is it that evil seems to come into my life and there's no real explanation for it? What, what, what happens to me when the proverbial formulas don't work? You know, uh, 
Train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he not depart from it. But I trained him up in the way he should go, and look at him, he departed. So what do I do about that? How do I explain this? And Job is going to show us, as will Ecclesiastes, how to handle these more difficult cases. And we'll round out our study for us. Now, before we come to the New Testament, I'd like for us to think for just a minute from the old, uh, how wisdom found its place in society in the Old Testament and turn to Daniel chapter 2 and that is page 1377. 1377. If you've got the spirit of the Reformation Study Bible and if you don't, you better get it. Daniel chapter 2, 1377. And here we're going to see that uh, wisdom as we have seen applies to, to several things. Uh, even people who have crafts, we saw in, in Exodus, those who could make things, they were, they were considered the wise men. The prophets were considered wise people. Uh, seers were considered wise people. And, and then you have in the court of a king, you have counselors or wise men. And this was true both in the secular courts and in the courts of Israel. For example, you know, David had the famous Ahithophel who was a counselor, a wise man. And so kings would always surround themselves with consultants and counselors, just, just like our president does. He's naming his wise men and women. He's naming them this month and next month uh, before he's inaugurated. And all kings have done that. Now, what's interesting is the type of wise people that were in a secular court. You know, Moses was in court uh, with Pharaoh on occasion. Joseph was in Pharaoh's court. Daniel was in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Now let's look at Daniel and see how the king used wise people there. This is chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. And just a, a little parenthetical here. About five nights ago, I mean, I never remember my dreams. The only dreams I remember is if I wake up immediately. And I had one right before the alarm went off. And here's what I, so I know what, I remember the dream. Here's what it was. I'm in the doctor's office, and he says, this is bad. <laughs> he said, I've never seen a case this bad. And, uh, of course, I could ask you what the interpretation was, and I don't want to know. But, uh, and of course, my answer was, Doc, there's only one, there's only one answer. You, you confused my chart with somebody else's. <laughs> Typical Wilson response, deny reality. Uh, and then I, then I woke up. Well, here's a king. He had a, he had a disturbing dream too. But he was looking for an interpretation. He believed that this was, this was significant of something. And, of course, in his case, it was. So the king, verse 2, summoned, look at this now, the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. And then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces, and your houses turned into piles of rubble. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me the gifts and rewards in great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. <laughs> Look at their replies. It's so funny. Let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll interpret it. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. <laughs> the astrologers answered the king. They said, there's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great in money, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. In other words, king, you're beyond my pay grade. I mean, this is not, this is not possible. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among men. This made the king so angry and furious. The king says, I don't care. <laughs> I want what I want. He was so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the, now look at this word, wise men. That's what the wise men were. They were enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers. The wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death because Daniel and his buddy, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were just put in with the wise men. They were supposed to learn how to be an enchanter, a sorcerer, an astrologer, like all the rest of them, so they could consult with the king. But you'll see that Daniel goes to his friends in verse 17. He urges them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And during the night, the mystery, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So this was a mystery. The king wasn't going to tell anybody what his dream was. You know, he said, I've had enough of you counselors. Yeah, you think you're so smart. Sure, if I tell you what the dream is, then you can tell me the divine interpretation. Well, how am I going to know it's divine? Why don't you just tell me what the dream was? You know? And uh, he finally gets so sick and tired of these astrologers and <laughs> these sorcerers and enchanters. He's going to get to the bottom of it. And, and it's a mystery. Nobody knows what it is. It's a secret. So the mystery is a secret. And you see here, here's how the secret got revealed. God revealed it, disclosed it to Daniel. And here's what Daniel said. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power. Look at this. Wisdom and power are his. So here Daniel ascribes to God alone as the source of wisdom and power. He says, he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers, you have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So Daniel is ascribing all wisdom and all power to God. And then he says, God, you've given me wisdom and power. So wisdom and power are what we call communicable attributes of God. They can be communicated to human beings. Now Daniel interprets the dream. And look at verse 27. Daniel replies, 
No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what's going to take place and so on. Verse 30, As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than any other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation that you may understand what went through your mind and so on. And then at the very end, verse 46 there, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Okay, now, we see that in the Old Testament that wise men were primarily those who consulted in the king's court. And we said earlier when we started studying Proverbs that Solomon was primarily teaching his sons how to be royalty, how to think like a king, how to be a wise king, how to be wise princes. Now, the big question is, what does that have to do with us? Well, it has everything to do with us because when you come to the New Testament, we find that just as Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, he makes all of his people prophets. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, prophesy Joel. And so when the new age comes, we're all prophets. We're all priests. We're all kings. We're all wise men. And this is what's so exciting, that this is not just for an elite class of enchanters and astrologers and and Consultants, although you know that when Jesus was born, who was it that came from the east? Wise men. Who were these? The enchanters, the astrologers, the sorcerers from the east who look at the stars and believe that there's something going on in the universe besides just mere mechanical material world. There's spirit something out there. They don't know what it is, but they, they see patterns and they believe in something greater than just the material world. These wise men come from the east because even... even the, the other religions and even the scientists of the world, if they're wise, will see that something is going on here with the alignment of the stars at Jesus' birth. But how does this come to all of us? That's what the New Testament is going to show us, is that we are all to be wise people. Now take, take your New Testament, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, that's page 1911. Ephesians 5, and see what Paul says to the Christians. <laughs> Ephesians 5.15 says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And so here the apostle is saying, all of you live as wise men. So gentlemen, let me say, if, if it is your desire to be a wise man, there is no reason why you cannot be a wise man. Just as surely as Daniel was a wise man. And we all know from benefiting from other wise men what a wise man is. A wise man is a person who can take a situation that you present to them. They can diagnose it in its real categories. They can give an answer about best 
practice or best steps to take to accomplish the ends that you have in mind. As we saw, J.I. Packer describes wisdom as choosing the right means to accomplish the right ends. And those are the people we all go to for advice, someone who can help us, first of all, choose the right end. And then having chosen the right end to help us devise the right means to accomplish those ends. And what are these wise people normally like? Well, uh, often they're, they're smart, you know, intelligent people. But by and large, they're just people who've been through life and who have studied life with an open mind to see patterns of cause and effect, oftentimes over decades of life. They've seen situations like this. So you bring a situation to them and without their even thinking about it, intuitively, they've seen 12 others like this before. And they've seen how they work out. And you're going to them for wisdom because they've been through this before. They've seen how it plays out. And there's wisdom. It, it, it's kind of like seeing the future, isn't it? It's almost like being a prophet. I can tell you how this is going to go. Uh, and I've, I've had it happen with so many of you here that, that I know where you've said something, you've given a piece of advice, and it turns out to be true. And the reason is you've been through that before. And you've seen patterns. You recognize these patterns in human life and in, in God's world. Now, there, there's a wise person. And what the Bible is showing us that we're all to live as wise people. We can all be wise even if you're young. That's the amazing thing. You can be given wisdom beyond your years. And there's a way in which that works. And the beauty of being a follower of Christ is that He is the giver of this wisdom. God is the one who has wisdom and power, and He gives it uh, to His people. And we'll see how that works out in the New Testament. Now, what we want to do is to see what this secret is all about, how this secret gets disclosed to us. And the first thing I want you to notice, uh, if you'll turn to Colossians chapter 2, I want you to see that Paul picks up this language of mystery that Daniel was using, ascribing to God the ability to reveal mysteries to us. And in Colossians 2, Paul says to the... This is page 1930. Paul says in Colossians 2, 2, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the first point we want to make in your outline is that the wisdom of God is fully revealed only in Jesus Christ. Now, you may remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. He had a dream of this statue with a gold head and silver arms and chest and so on, and all the way down to clay feet. And then there was a big rock that came and destroyed the statue. And Daniel said, well, I'll give you the interpretation. God gave it to me. You're the gold head, and the one who follows you is going to be the silver, and then the bronze, and so on, until finally a kingdom arises that is represented by the rock that smashes these secular kingdoms, and that rock continues to grow and endures forever. And king, I'm telling you, you're the, you're the king of the kings, and then the kings will succeed you, and they will eventually be destroyed by this greatest of all kingdoms. That's the mystery. Now, here's what Paul is saying, that when we follow Jesus Christ, we are given complete understanding. We're given the mind of Christ so that this mystery is revealed to us that Jesus Christ himself 
is the mystery. He says that he prays for us to have uh, full understanding in order that we may know the mystery of God, namely, here is the mystery of God, Christ. So it's Christ's kingdom that's destroying all the secular rulers of this age. This is the mystery, Christ. And he's saying that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of the Proverbs, all the treasures of Job and Ecclesiastes, all the treasures of the wisdom of God are in Christ. Ah, so if we can just access Christ, we will be the wise people. That is, that is what, that, that's the fundamental teaching of the New Testament, that everything that you can possibly learn, think about all the practical lessons that we've heard. I mean, it's almost like an avalanche or a flood that's come over us as we've studied Proverbs. All these varieties of things about how to rear children, how to love your wife, how to spend your money, how to save your money, how to, how to uh, look at uh, decisions. All these unbelievable teachings that have come to us. It's all going to be summarized in Christ if you want to know how to apply those things to life. Now, what we want to do is to look for just a moment at why Christ is the full revelation of the wisdom of God. And let's just look quickly at about six components in the New Testament. First of all, let's look at His being, His personhood. What about His personhood? Well, He is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is God. The Word, the Logos, is, is you, they, you know, it's, you almost think that John could have used, instead of Logos, he could have used Sophia. He could have used wisdom. That in the beginning was wisdom, and the wisdom was with God, and wisdom was God. And in fact, in some of the old wisdom literature that's extra-biblical, uh, wisdom is personified as God. So John is not saying anything here that had not been said about wisdom for centuries. People recognize this philosophical concept that was difficult to explain, that was this great mystery of God that is God Himself in some sense. So John was just using available categories in his own day. He is God. Secondly, He created all things. As John says, through Him all things that were made were made. All things, says Paul, were created by Him and for Him. This Jesus Christ made everything. Gentlemen, uh, I don't know when the last time is you've thought a little bit about it, the, the solar system and the universe that we live in, but it's just a mind-blower. I mean, you, you take Voyager 1 or Voyager 2, where they, they travel at about, what, 35,000 miles an hour. That's about as fast as you can go, I think, in, you know, out there in the galactic world. And uh, so, you know, it takes a good while to get out there to Uranus and Pluto and so on. And they're still traveling. And they're going to keep traveling because there's the Urdu, Urdu uh, ring of comets and all this that's out beyond Pluto that's part of our solar system. And you know how long it'll take Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 to get out there? 10,000 years. That's how big just our solar system is. Now, do you know how long it's going to take them if they keep traveling somewhat of a straight line, if straight means anything in that world out there? Uh, do you know how long it'll take them to hit something the next thing next to our solar system? Another 25,000 uh, years. 25,000 years beyond the ring of comets around this solar system. And do you know how many stars there are? How many solar systems there are in our galaxy, the Milky Way? Somewhere between 100 and 400 billion. We don't even know how many stars there are. 
Do you know how many galaxies there are? They guess there are probably 100 billion galaxies plus. Do you know who made this? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's so remarkable. This is how great He is. That He is God and He created everything. And furthermore, everything was made by Him, through Him, and for His everlasting glory. This unbelievable display of fireworks in the skies every night is for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ who made it. That's how great He is. So if you want to know why He's so wise, well, shoot. Just look what He's done. And you know how delicately balanced our solar system is. If you change the math in it, just a little shade, the whole thing implodes. It's very delicately put together. And it, you can't be off one little fraction of a nanosecond on the timing of this universe or it falls apart. That's what the astronomers have shown us. Christ made all this. So if you want to know why He's so wise, He is God. He created all things. Number three, He sustains all things. He's sustaining all things by His powerful Word. He's got this unbelievable engine going here, this universe with these billions and times billions of stars that are immense things, these stars, creating unbelievable amounts of light and heat. And He's sustaining all this. Every moment, He's sustaining it personally. <laughs> what a mind. And He is human. This is what's most remarkable. In John chapter 1, everything you find there in the prologue of John's gospel, you can find in uh, intertestamental literature about wisdom, except for one thing. The Word became flesh. That is the one concept you do not find anywhere in any biblical or extra-biblical literature. So you can find all these things about wisdom, except that it became flesh. And so what happened in the incarnation, you take God himself and all of his grandeur and majesty, and he took on human flesh. So when we're talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we're talking about God in the flesh, and of course that blows our minds. How do you, how do you take the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and who created this universe that I've just described, and he's in a human being? I don't know. It's called the hypostatic union, and it's the mystery of all mysteries. But this is, this is the mystery, namely Christ. That's what Paul was saying. So first of all, his being. If you want to know why he's the summation of all wisdom and knowledge, just think about him for a moment. Of course he is. He's immense. Secondly, his deeds. And you know, the, those who are watching Jesus' ministry says, what's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? So as you know, in the Old Testament times, in the court of Egypt especially, when Moses went and did some of his, his miraculous work, the magicians would copy him up to a certain point. They couldn't create the fleas. I think that was the one where they just finally blew all their fuses. They couldn't, couldn't do the flea thing. But they could do the snake thing, and they could do the, the blood and the water thing. Couldn't get the gnats, you know. But they could imitate. They could do magic. And, of course, Moses wasn't doing magic. He was doing miraculous works uh, by God's power, by Jehovah's power. And what these people were saying when they observed Jesus' ministry, he is a miracle worker. In other words, that was part of the wisdom of the courts, that they had, they had supernatural powers. And they're saying, Jesus has it. So that was well recognized in his ministry. And we could look at some of those if we had time. Thirdly, his teachings. And once again, the people... Uh, around him 
uh, noticed that his teaching was unusual. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They asked. So when he taught, they recognized it as wise. Why? Because when he taught, everything was in, an, in accord with the deepest understanding of their intuitions about human existence and about what's obvious about God. And he tied it all together in an integrated way. It was all perfectly consistent. It was true. It was good. It was beautiful. It was in accord with everything God had already revealed in the Old Testament. It was wise. It was deep. It was true. They recognized it. Amazing teaching, they always said about him. So his teachings are phenomenal. Fourthly, here we get to the crux of the matter, literally. The word crux in Latin means cross. Uh, but we preach Christ crucified, said the Apostle Paul, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you have the apostle showing us, here's the real message of wisdom. And here how it is, here's how the wisdom of God is contrary to the wisdom of this world. I'm telling you, in every case, the wisdom of this world avoids the cross. The wisdom of this world is showing you how you can be successful in this flesh with yourself the way you are to be successful. And Paul had a very different message that wisdom in this world ends up dying on a cross. First of all, for Jesus. Secondly, for you. And the Romans thought uh, that, or the Greeks rather, thought this was ridiculous. It was foolishness. It was idiocy. No philosopher ever said that. Why, why do people want to go die on a cross? Why do we want to talk about the wisdom being a dead Jew over in, in Galilee? What good is that going to do us? Let's talk about Plato and Aristotle and, and Socrates and so on. They thought it was complete foolishness. And the Jews, of course, uh, thought that it was weak. We're looking for a Messiah who's not going to die naked on a tree, but who's going to rule over all the kingdoms of the world, who's going to take over, who's going to deliver us from the Romans. What's this death stuff? Dead Messiah? You may as well talk about fried ice. It makes no sense whatsoever. And so they thought it was powerless and weak. And here's what Paul said. No, it's just the opposite. Here is the crux of the mystery. Here's the heart of the mystery of Christ. It is the cross. And for those of us who are being saved, those of us who are benefiting from the cross, we've recognized the cross as the power of God. This is how he overcomes the principalities and powers. This is how he's going to overthrow the nations. This is the way we're going to receive the crown. It's through the cross. It's the power of God. And, says the apostle, it's the wisdom of God. You want to know the deepest mystery of the universe? You want to tie in all of your lifestyle and all of your decisions with the ultimate reality of the universe? You can only do it through Christ, and you can only have Christ through the cross. You can't know Christ any other way but to embrace His cross and to take up your own cross. This is the wisdom of God. It's the only way to get there. That's what the apostle is saying. And let me say, gentlemen, I have seen this over and over and over again. If there's one thing that's at the center of a believing pastor's counseling ministry, 
It's Christ crucified. Let me just give you some examples. I just think of several, including perhaps some of you, who have had real difficulties as an adult with your adult parents who are acting like children before they're senile. I'm just talking about adult children who are having real difficulty with their parents. And I've had them come into my office being just off the charts, frustrated, in tears, some of the women. And the men are so angry they don't even talk to them. Do you know what switches all of that? You know what changes everything? You know how those relationships get radically transformed? By the cross. Really, honestly. You know how? Here's how. Why do you get frustrated with your parents? And I'm talking about you 50-year-olds, you 40-year-olds. Why do you get frustrated with your parents? You 30-year-olds. Why do you get frustrated with your parents? Because you want something from them that they're not giving you. Now, sometimes that's money, but that's rare. Here's the, here's the normal thing. The normal thing they're not giving you is affirmation. And all of us want to be affirmed. Guys want to be affirmed by their fathers. And when your fathers withhold that from you, it'll create a frustration in you that'll just burn like a raging fire, oftentimes. And you get mad at them, and you can't live with them, and you don't want to talk with them anymore because they run you down and won't give you what you want, affirmation. And usually, the most mature and the wisest response we get to that is, well, just avoid them. They're irregular, dysfunctional. Just cut them out of your life. That's the only way you can survive. What does the cross do for you? The cross reminds you that you were worse than your parents. That you railed against God. You were a rebellious child, and He sent His Son against your will initially, to die for you. You didn't want him to die. You didn't ask him to die for you. You didn't think you even needed that kind of help. He died for you anyway. And then after he died, you didn't believe it. You didn't receive it. So what did he do? He sent his spirit, his clean spirit, on your unclean heart so that he could change your heart so that you believe that he died on the cross for you and so that you could embrace him as your father. That's what the father did for you. And so now you're going to complain about somebody who's not treating you right? No, the cross will change your entire mentality once you realize what's been done for you, that you were reconciled to the Father through the unilateral sacrifice of His one and only Son, His blood shed to death for you. You will not be dismissing people from this universe because they're not treating you right. Because you have received His cross and now you've taken up your cross. So then you'll realize the only way you can relate to your adult parents is with a cross. There's a cross between you. And all you have to have from your parents is the willingness to be served. All you have to do is to be able to serve your parents. Well, some people don't want to be served. That's fine. You know, a third grade teacher has children come in all the time. They don't want to learn. They don't, you know. So what do you do? You just keep serving them. And sometimes you have to discipline the relationship. Sometimes you have to discipline the relationship with your parents. Sometimes you have to say, you know, you can't call me three times a day. Look, I'm going to call you once a day, or I'm going to call you three times a week, or I'm going to call you every Sunday afternoon. And you set the pace. You have to discipline. If you're a third grade teacher, you have to discipline uh, your students. And sometimes your parents act like third graders. And so you do have to put rules in. But does that mean you don't love them? No, it just means that you are serving them. And you are going to relate to them in a way that leads, hopefully, to a healthy relationship. You're going to offer always a healthy relationship. You're not going to offer an unhealthy relationship. 
a mutually dysfunctional relationship. You're going to offer a healthy relationship. Maybe the third grader doesn't want a healthy relationship. If they don't want a healthy relationship, you can't have a relationship with them because you're just continually offering a healthy relationship but without cutting them off. You don't cut third grade students off. You keep pleading with them to accept a healthy relationship. And you're serving them. You're not demanding anything from them anymore. You're only demanding that you be able to serve them. Now, if you just demand of someone that you be their servant, I don't think you're going to have a whole lot of problems with this relationship. And if I'm a third grade teacher and my third grade student tells me he hates me, I'm telling you what, that just doesn't ruin my day at all. I go home and I don't, my, my self-esteem is not lowered. It hasn't ruined my relationship with my wife. I'm not moping around. That's what third grade students do. And sometimes that's what your parents do. And you don't let it get to you. That's just one example. How many times has the cross done similar work in marriages? I have guys come in, they'll be frustrated about their wives. You know, they, they just, all they do is criticize me. Or she won't go to bed with me anymore. Or, you know, whatever it is. I've you know, had guys tell me she didn't squeal enough during orgasm. I mean, I mean it's unbelievable. <laughs> These people that are demanding certain performances, you know, out of their wives. Well, why don't you put up a cross? What is your, we've already seen the sex life. What, what, what's that all about? It's about your serving her. Duh. New transformative paradigm for romance. And if you'll look at the cross in your relationship with your wife, I guarantee you it'll radically change the relationship with your wife. If you look that way with your employees, I'll guarantee you'll make a difference in your workplace. You start looking at your employees as people you serve instead of serving you and the bottom line. It'll change everything. This is the mystery of God. And it's not a fable. It's not a trick. It's not magic. It's simply getting in touch with reality because this is what God did. He sent His only Son who created the universe for His glory to take on human flesh in the babe born of a virgin woman so that He might grow up and die on a cross to pay for our sins, to set us free, to be reconciled to Him so that we go out and live a cross-centered life with other people. That's the mystery of God. And this is the kingdom that's taking over the secular kingdoms of the world. This is God's big plan to bring everything in unity at His feet in worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the big plan, unifying everything. How's He unifying it? Through the cross. That's the reason, although the secularists will never get it, because it's weak and because it's powerless and because it seems so foolish. How can death accomplish anything? They don't get it. But it's the message of the cross which is the wisdom of God. And you don't get the wisdom of the Old Testament in its grandeur and fullness until you come to Christ and you see what He's done to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies and to fulfill and to be the man of wisdom who will give that wisdom to us. You may say, you know, I never even finished college or I'm hardly making enough money to put food on the table or no one thinks of me as successful. I'm telling you something. He can make a child wise. He can certainly make you wise. And as long as you're willing to serve Him in the places He gives you to serve, you'll find that that wisdom really comes to fruition. So it's the cross. It changes everything. Now, fifthly, notice that it's His Spirit. And please turn to 1 Corinthians 2, and let's look for a moment at this text about the Spirit, because it's the message of the cross 
But how are we going to receive that message? It is by the Spirit. And I'd like to remind you that in the prophecies that we read at Christmas time about Jesus Christ, this idea of the Spirit comes into play. Let me just read this for you. Don't turn here, but in uh, Isaiah 11, Isaiah says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch, that's Christ, will bear fruit. Look at this. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of power. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon this Christ. It's very much related to the Spirit. So in order for us to have the mystery of God that we apply to all of life through the message of the cross, there has to be the presence of God by His Spirit in our lives. This is very personal. It's very intimate, very intuitive. And look at how it works out even with respect to this message of the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says in verse 6, this is page 1844, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom. This is the mystery, you see. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So he's saying this this wisdom has been hidden to us in its essence and in its fullness. It was hidden before the coming of Christ. Now with Christ coming, it's been disclosed. That's what Christmas is all about. The wisdom of God has been fully displayed before the universe. He has disclosed the glory and the grandeur of all the wisdom that's been given to us in the Old Testament in Christ. But the world hasn't understood it because they have what's known as worldly wisdom. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians decries this worldly wisdom. It's the opposite of godly wisdom. And so they've not understood it. So how are they going to understand it? How are you going to understand it? Because you're brought into this world with worldly wisdom. How are you possibly going to get this mystery? Even though Jesus was born and He died on a cross and He was raised, how are you going to believe it? How are you going to accept it? How is that going to come into your life? Well, let's keep reading. I'm glad you asked. He says, however, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But... God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. So no mind can conceive it. No eye can see it. No mind can actually believe it. So God, even when He discloses it, nobody gets it. It's like He gives it to us in a foreign language and nobody knows the language. So what difference did it make? Ah, it does make a difference. Because He gives us the gift of reading the language and interpreting it. How does He do that? By His Spirit. And that's what it means to receive the Spirit into your life. He is the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. He is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Keep reading. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of, of a man except the man's spirit within him? A dog doesn't know a man's thoughts. Only a man knows a man's thoughts. That's what he's saying. There's a different... There's a different nature or kind here. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
So how are you going to know the wisdom of God except that God Himself give it to you? Because a man, a creature, can't know the mind of the Creator. We're of a different kind. Just like a dog can't know your thoughts. We can't know God's thoughts. So how's that going to happen? Except by the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You know, sometimes if you're trying to convince someone to be a Christian, it can just get really frustrated. You know, uh, Lucy came home one day and told Charlie, she said, Charlie, I'm a, I'm a great evangelist. Huh, you, an evangelist? And how do you do that? She said, well, well I just beat them over the head with my lunchbox until they agree with me. And that's what you want to do sometimes. Just beat them over the head with your lunchbox, you know? Well, here's the problem. It's not that they're being obstreperous. It's not that they're being more hard-headed than you are. It's that they can't understand until they have the Spirit of God. You know what you need to do? You need to go home and take all your frustration about that person Maybe it's a family member. That's the, those are the ones you get most frustrated with. Take all your frustrations about your family member. Get down, go home, get down on your knees and beg God and plead with Him and beat on His door instead of beating on the head of your friend. Beat on God. Plead with Him. You know why? He's the only one who can make them understand. They have to have the Spirit. Just like Daniel said, who's going to know this dream? Nobody's going to know this dream. These astrologers are right. Kings don't ask things like this for us to know the dream. Who could ask us to know the mystery of the universe? Come on, give me a break. I'm not God. But God reveals it to us by His Spirit, and we have the mind of Christ. This is what Christ has done for you in coming to this world. He has come to pay the ultimate price, to reconcile you to God, but then also to give you the same Spirit that He has without measure. He has it without measure. He gives us the Spirit so that we can understand. Now, sixthly, we're not making real good time here, are we? Jesus Christ is the full revelation of the wisdom of God because of His salvation. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 3. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. This is the ultimate revelation. You see, we have the cross, which is the message of God's wisdom. We have the Spirit, who is the communicator of God's wisdom. And then we have our ultimate salvation, which is the fulfillment of God's wisdom in our lives. And this is what gives us perspective in life. If you want to know how it works intellectually, this is the reason that God's people are to be the discerning people of the universe, because we're the ones who have the long-term view. How long? Eternity. That's how long. We have salvation. We've already pressed our minds into heaven. And everything that we're doing on earth is in view of what's going to happen in heaven. And we're the only ones who have that because we're the only ones who have the way to heaven because 
Apart from Christ, there is no way to eternal salvation. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, said the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have that eternal perspective, which then gives us a path on which we're walking. And everything in life is geared toward that ultimate destiny. So Christ gives us salvation, which gives us wisdom. You can't have wisdom without salvation. Because you can't see the long road. And you're not headed in the right direction. Remember, Packer says that wisdom is choosing the right means to accomplish the right end. And what is the ultimate end? It's salvation. So you can't have the right end. And if you don't have the right end, you're not going to choose the right means. That's what makes us wise. That's where it all comes together in the New Testament. Now, in five minutes, we're going to race through these next two major points. The wisdom of God is eminently practical. And Jesus put it this way. Jesus was a wisdom teacher. He says, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. In other words, you'll know wisdom by the deeds that come out of it. It's very practical. And we know that we are to be the wise people of God, and so the world ought to be looking upon the church and saying, boy, those people, they look at the wise life they're living. They don't get leveraged way out over their heads. They've got their finances roughly in control. Their marriages are sound. They're, they're disciplining their children well. They're content in their hearts. They've got a balance to their life and a pattern in their life. They know who their God is. They have self-confidence. Look at those people. They're wise. They have an orderly life. They have the law of God. They have the Spirit. They have God's presence. This is what Moses said. They will all say, what a great nation you are. What God dwells among them like your God dwells among you. We have God's presence. We have His law. We have His ways. We know the end from the beginning. So it's eminently practical. This gospel, the foolishness of the cross, is not so foolish at all when it comes down to putting the rubber on the road. For one thing, we're making judgments better. It's practical for making judgments. And you'll see that in 1 Corinthians 6 in a, a, a sort of an elliptical way. And then in, uh, it's practical for making decisions. Paul says, I don't think it's wise to do this, that, and the other. So he was using practical wisdom. It comes from being rooted in Christ. It's practical for, for evangelism. Jesus says to his disciples, when you go evangelizing, you'll be persecuted. But don't worry, I'll give you wisdom. You see, this is, this is a mystery, and it's personal, and he's working in your heart. He brings to life all those scripture verses you've been studying, and he brings them to an intuitive perspective to apply to all the situations of life, even the ones that are not directly and explicitly addressed in the scriptures. It's practical for living a peaceful life. James 3 talks about this. James is the New Testament Proverbs. Wish we had more time to talk about that. But James talks about how we talk, how we treat the poor, how we must not show favors to the rich, how we must undergo sufferings and trials. And he says there's a wisdom from this world and there's a wisdom from above. And the wisdom from this world, is, is, it, it creates strife. It's, it's competitive. It puts people down. The wisdom of, from heaven is peaceable and pure and considerate and peace, peaceable. And so the wisdom from above is a peacemaking wisdom. So studying James 3 would be very worth our while. It's also useful for perseverance. Very practical. Jesus said, here's a wise man. He takes what he hears in the Bible and actually puts it into practice. And here's a foolish man. He goes to Bible studies. He hears the word of God. He doesn't put it into practice. That's a foolish man. He says, here's what it's like. Wise man builds his house on a rock. 
the rains come, the floods come, the wind comes, and it's not going to knock that house down. It's built on a foundation. It's built on a rock. This house over here by the foolish man, it's like a man building on sand. And the floods come, it's gone. Just, just blown away. And that's a foolish man. He does not put into practice what he hears. So it's, wisdom is very practical for persevering through life. Now lastly, in one minute, the wisdom of God is attained through obedient faith. And let me just rattle these off. First of all, we humble ourselves. God has chosen to hide these things from the worldly wise and the worldly learned. So only those who have great degrees and great IQ, this is hidden from them. In fact, God intentionally hides it from them because He will not have His wisdom confused with worldly wisdom. This is a wisdom that comes from humility, putting yourself at the feet of the cross. Secondly, we must ask God. If any of you ask, lacks wisdom, he should ask God. So you want to know how you get this wisdom? Ask him. If it comes from him, ask him. When you hit the wall and you don't know what to do, ask him. When your relationships are falling apart and you don't know what the next step is, ask him for wisdom, the divine wisdom of the universe to come into your heart and give you direction. Thirdly, believe God's promises. When, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Trust him. His promise to give you the Spirit. Trust Him. Ask Him to give you the Spirit and trust Him to give you the Spirit. Fourthly, study God's Word. As Paul says, the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So the Scriptures are continually making you wiser in the things of God, in the mystery of God. And then lastly, obey God's Word as we were saying from Matthew chapter 7. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? He's the one who does what the master says. That's the wise servant who does what God said. So there you have it. The wisdom of God coming to its ultimate crescendo in the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant. So everything that we study in the Old Testament is moving toward Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this season of the year and what it means to us to know that in these days in which we're living, you have disclosed your great mystery in Jesus Christ through His cross and resurrection and by the power of Your Spirit. Thank You for giving us the mystery of the universe so that we may go out now with the decisions we have to make and the choices we will make and the lives we're to live and to do so with the wisdom of the eternal God. God, bless these men, bless their families and all their friendships and all their work that we may indeed rejoice and what you've given us through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Merry Christmas.